As a mother, wife, and divorce attorney for over 15 years, experience has taught me a lot about how to deal with times of uncertainty, transition, and facing opportunities for growth. I'm happy you're joining me for this part of the journey. In a divorce process, one of the first steps that you may be asked to consider is whether you're going to need temporary orders. And if so, how are you going to get those temporary orders? Here with me to demystify temporary orders and the process is Lindsay Barbie. Lindsay is an attorney with the law firm of Hargrave Family Law, and I love working with her. She's, she's a fabulous attorney and she cares deeply about her clients. And I'm so excited to have her here to talk with me today about temporary orders. <laughs> Welcome, Lindsay. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so let's just start off sort of defining what are temporary orders. Temporary orders is a term that we use for the things we put in place so that the status quo is kept while a case is pending. It can be everything from who's going to pay the bills, what the schedule is going to be for the kids once the parents are living in separate households. It can go as far as to regulate how people spend money, whether they can use certain bank accounts, how much debt they can incur, how their attorneys are paid through attorney's fees. So all of those things that we use to keep the trains running on time and make sure that people just know what's going on while they're going through this process of a divorce can all be defined in that area of temporary orders. So, you know, I know when people first come into the divorce process, the, the big questions they have are, you know, where am I going to be living? Um, how are the bills going to get paid? When am I going to see the children? Uh, you know, are, are we going to have to move? Are we going to have to sell the house? Um, all those questions. And so those are really the issues that are getting resolved in temporary orders. Um, what are the options for getting temporary orders in place? There's a lot of different approaches you can take. It could be something as simple as two people just have a verbal understanding and everyone is just sticking with the agreements they make. You don't even reduce it to writing. Kind of the intermediate thing a lot of times that we do when we don't want to have an, or necessarily need to go to the judge to ask the judge to do something is that the parties through their attorneys can enter into what we call a rule 11 agreement, which is based on rule 11 of the Texas rules of civil procedure. <laughs> That's why we call it that. And it just says that it's agreement you put in writing and you file it with the court. And so that way it defines the parameters of how things are going to go. And if in that process, the uh, parties or the attorneys are unable to reach these agreements or come to some sort of understanding, then we have what's called a temporary orders hearing, which is where you file a request with the court to have the judge hear everything. And then after the conclusion of that hearing, the judge is the one who defines the parameters. So we're going to come, we're going to talk about the temporary orders hearing in more detail, but I, I want to back up for just a moment um, because you touched on something and that is that there can be just informal arrangements. Um, when we talk about temporary orders, I mean, an order is an order of the court, right? Correct. And so it's actually a written document that contains, you know, all the commands about what you shall and shall not do. Um, let's talk about the less formal arrangements that people sometimes make in the process. When when do you see that happening? And, um, and is that a good thing for clients? I think it's a great thing anytime that clients can come to their own agreements 
because it puts them in the driver's seat. They are in control of what's happening. And through that process of even negotiating something as simple as what day are you picking up the kids or how are we going to pay the phone bill? It sets the tone of future cooperation between parties, especially co-parents. So one of the best parts about that too is that it does help reduce costs. So instead of if we're doing something like I said that was a Rule 11 agreement, it's not as long as a formal order, which sometimes those can be 30 pages long, even for the temporary arrangements. And when we're able to just outline that bullet point for clients, they know what's going on, we're able to file it with the court, and then spend time and resources doing things like getting the snapshot of what the marital estate is through a sworn inventory and appraisement. And also, if there is a need for any sort of intervention from a mental health professional, like a child custody evaluation, that's something else that you can go ahead and agree to do and not have to spend perhaps weeks waiting just to get into court and then having your attorneys have to prepare for this formal adversarial hearing. So let's talk about the temporary orders hearing. Um, you know, I, the word temporary in that can, I think, make it feel like it's maybe informal or not as important. And I think that can be a little misleading. What do you tell your clients about temporary orders, the temporary orders hearing? I call it a Band-Aid in a lot of ways because it really is from that time you file for divorce and then the day that the judge grants your divorce it is this temporary arrangement prior to getting your final agreed decree of divorce or uh, just a final decree of divorce after a trial. So we like to there's just basic things that we always know we're going to have to deal with. I mentioned before things like bills being paid, uh, activities for the children, what the schedule is going to be, who's going to take the kids to the doctor, childcare arrangements. All of those things fall under that. And a lot of times when people are getting along and they're trying to cooperate towards it, we just pretty much formalize in a way what we've already been doing and just make sure everyone knows where they're supposed to be at what time. Which is so important. I mean, clarifying those understandings and putting them, a lot of times they look very different on paper and people will discover when we start writing it out, oh no, wait, I really, that's not what I meant. I didn't really, you know, mean that the schedule would look like this, or you know, that she could pick them up every day after school or whatever. And so when we actually put it on paper, people, it helps set expectations, which avoids frustration when everybody knows what to expect. So I think that that's really important. When it comes to, if they're not able to agree, then they go to a hearing. So when it comes to preparing for the actual hearing, what, what do people need to know about the hearing itself? Depending on what court you're in and what jurisdiction you're in, there are some judges that require you to go to mediation prior to even having a hearing. So you know you might have that extra step in there on a temporary order. There are some judges that give you 20 minutes aside. So, and that goes by very quickly because that's the time for you to put on your case, for your attorney to cross-examine the other side if you've got witnesses. It's all about, I think, simplifying and consolidating the main issues before the court, finances and where the kids are gonna be. So one of the documents that we use in every single temporary orders case 
is called a financial information sheet, which it's essentially just your monthly budget. It says, this is how much money we're bringing in between the two of us. This is what each of the bills are, when they're paid. We estimate things that maybe aren't as much of a fixed cost, such as groceries or incidentals for medical stuff for the kids, even things like entertainment, like you're going to send your kid off to the movies with their friends. And we know that their allowance is going to be $20 a week or whatever kids are getting these days. <laughs> I'm not sure that goes far that's anymore. A, that's a deal right there. I'm telling yeah. you, but, um, and so that financial information sheet is, uh, is, I mean, is a really important document and it, it takes some work to put it together, right? What if, what if you're not the one who's, you know, been paying the bills? What if you don't know what you're spending? How, how do you, how do you build that out? So we've, touched on this before in one of our other shows, but one of the things that happens in every lawsuit now when it's filed is that you have to do what are called required initial disclosures, which include both sides having to produce and exchange two years worth of financial documents as well as tax returns. So that's one way that through just the general rules of procedure, we are able to go through those statements, whether they're from our client or they're given to us by the other side. And then we try to just use that to create the budget. Some people, they are, they have something like where they're uh, like mint, for instance, is like a software that I use. It's an app where it actually does the budgets. A lot of banks do that now where it will categorize things that you spend money on. So those are all different tools that we use to try to come up with an estimate. And it's never going to be the exact amount every month. But for the clients who don't know or who aren't as involved in the finances, we're usually having to work with the other side to get that information. When it comes to looking at those monthly expenses, how do you, you know, what about bills that are paid once a year? You know, if you have like property taxes or something that's not part of the mortgage payment or insurance payments, how does that factor into that monthly snapshot of expenses? A lot of times I will have clients just take the, if it's an annual fee, I'll just divide it by 12 and add it in there because you know it's going to be something that's going to need to be paid and budgeted for. And if quarterly things. I mean, again, it's something that we just use a rough estimate. And what the judge is going to do, or even when you're just working on figuring out the finances by agreement, is you look at those monthly amounts that both people have. Sometimes it includes getting a second residence if one of the spouses moves out. So we move those numbers around and then we take a look at how what income each spouse is bringing in. And if there's a shortfall, uh, say that you have the spouse who doesn't earn as much, but that is going to be the parent who stays in the residence. Then we look at the financial landscape as a whole, and it may be that the other spouse who makes more is going to be transferring a certain amount of money each month to their um, co-parent to help cover those bills. Or a judge can say, well, we know you're not living in the house, but you've got to keep making the mortgage payment or the car payment. So it gets split out because the community estate is one big pie. It doesn't matter whose paycheck it comes from. <laughs> so uh, that would be something called temporary spousal support, right? Where mm -hmm. one, one spouse is helping to 
fund some of the expenses for the other spouse's benefit. Um, and we certainly see that in the temporary orders. Uh, that's a common thing that we see. Um, is child support also then something that we see in temporary orders? It is. And I, it's still the same thing where it's a lot more of a math problem than in this stage of the case than it is once you have a final order. Because people have heard of the term guideline child support, which is the amount that the court orders once a case is done that's going to be paid every month by one parent to another. It's calculated using a formula, percentage depending on the number of kids. But while a case is pending, I think of it as a family budget more than you're paying me or I'm paying you because, again, everyone is still a member of that unit until the day the judge grants your divorce. Well, and I think one thing that people don't understand in the state of Texas, at least, that, I mean, you're still married until you're divorced. And so that means that there's still community income, right? Community Correct. property. Um, that will change once the divorce is finalized. So while a court may be very willing to grant some temporary spousal support during temporary orders, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be getting spousal maintenance after the divorce is entered, right? That's correct. And I mean, there's also situations too where if you have a premarital agreement that you entered into uh, before your marriage, it may actually outline a lot of these temporary issues as well. So that's something really important for people to talk to their attorneys about so that they know where the general rule might be the court can do X, Y, Z. If you've already signed this contract prior to your divorce getting started, you may be bound by those terms and there might be limits on the amount of support that the court can order. That's right. And I think you just raised a really good point, which is, you know, the premarital agreement. I mean, it's sort of a reason why maybe people need to be, you know, if, they're, if you're getting married, <laughs> um, you may be wanting to think about premarital agreements because it, it gives you an opportunity uh, while you're still in love, um, anticipating the marriage to put some of those parameters in place. So you don't have to go down to the courthouse. Um, of course, going to court is expensive. What do you... What, do you, what is your general ballpark? Do you have an idea of what it costs, you know, to, for temporary orders? I think that if you have just a regular temporary orders hearing where you're not in some sort of emergency situation or family violence situation, I think of it in terms of hourly rate and how much time it takes. So if we've got a half day hearing, I usually tell clients it's going to be 15 to 20 hours of preparation between drafting everything, getting all the evidence together, and then I make it a point to work with clients prior to the hearing just so they understand what questions are going to be asked and how we're going to get through the information. Because with such a limited amount of time we usually have before the court, it's really important to be efficient. And it's not ever going to be a script because you want, I mean, you want your clients to tell their story and you don't want it to feel forced or rehearsed, but there is a lot to be said for having an idea of what kinds of questions to expect, not only from your own lawyer, but also when you're subject to cross-examination by the opposing counsel. So, so I want to talk about cross-examination real, real quick, because we've mentioned that a couple of times. And so, you know, if you're not a lawyer and you've never been to court before, you might not know what that means. What is cross-examination? Cross-examination is we have direct, which is when your lawyer is putting on your case for you. So they have to ask you open-ended questions. Who, what, when, where, why, how? In cross-examination, it's the other side's chance to ask the adverse party questions or an adverse witness. It doesn't 
doesn't have to be just the parties. And those are typically yes or no questions. And so whereas your own lawyer cannot ask you a leading question that suggests the answer, a cross-examination question is going to be where they try to dissect, poke holes, and clarify things to make their case through questions they ask. Isn't it true, Ms. Barbie? <laughs> Isn't it true? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it is. And one of the things I think that it is nerve-wracking for uh, clients, for someone who's not been through a legal proceeding before because you've seen TV and you've seen the movies and all that and it just sounds like such a scary thing being cross-examined and I mean it's not fun don't get me wrong I mean it's, but I mean there the things that we talk to our clients about is only answer the question that's asked and the question I always ask clients in the beginning of any kind of preparation we're doing is can you tell me what color the sky is? And everyone says blue. I said, no, no, no. Listen to the question <laughs> I asked you. Can you tell me what color the sky is? And once clients realize that and that they can take a breath, take a beat and just say, okay, this is happening. And the good part is even if you feel like, oh my gosh, the other lawyer just beat me up. I get to come back as your lawyer on what we call redirect and clarify some things. So if I see them trying to make an inference or take it down a direction that you didn't get to say everything that you needed to say, then your lawyer can come back and help. And that's where that preparation is so important because we spend time with our clients really fleshing out what the story is. So we know what the story is. It's easy on cross-examination for, you know, with yes and no questions for something to appear a little different than how it really happened but that's why in redirect then you can really flesh it out i always think you know it's um it's such a, a highly stressful time and, and we want people to know that going into it that being cross-examined is not fun <laughs> in fact i often you know after i do cross-examination when i'm driving home you know i'll hear myself isn't it true miss hargrave you just changed lanes without signaling first and you know it's like every decision you've ever made is is uh, you know under examination and it's it's hard. It's really hard. And one of the reasons that we do our best to encourage clients to reach some sort of settlement to avoid that adversarial portion of uh, the process is that it's not fun and it's kind of difficult to go from having your spouse's lawyer beat you up on the stand to having to stand next to each other at a soccer game. Well, I mean, I think you're, you raise a really good point, which is, you know, in marriage relationships, spouses share details about their lives. And when we come into the courtroom, people are often surprised to see that all of the, those confidences will be used against them and can be used against them. And that, that can create a lot of deep wounds that makes it very difficult to be at the soccer game. <laughs> it's true. And it's not insurmountable. I mean, we have had clients who do have these adversarial hearings and sometimes going through that in the very beginning of the case makes them realize, I don't want to do this again. This yeah. is not fun. And I think that oftentimes can make people say, okay, going to court is not what I thought it was going to be. I'm not getting to 
make it right or get justice. It's, yeah. So it's, no, this is a very limited process and what we can do by time and also just the amount of information that's going to be relevant in the beginning. And that's one of the things, too, that's difficult to understand, I think, is we're limited by the rules of evidence. So when we go into court, what we can actually present to the court um, has to be reliable, it has to be authenticated, it has to meet the standards. And so that people, are, I think, are often a little frustrated or disappointed with you know, I don't just get to go in and, you know, blurb what everybody's told me. Nope. <laughs> and the other thing, too, when you mentioned the evidence that we put in, the initial disclosures I'd mentioned before that you have to exchange within 30 days, it's that's why it's so important that you bring your documents to your lawyer, because those are what we use to make your case. And a lot of times a temporary orders hearing doesn't happen in the first 30 days. So those deadlines hit. And if you haven't turned over all of your documents that you plan to use in that hearing, then you're not going to be able to use that awesome text that you want to use <laughs> or those, or the doctor records for your kiddo or something like that. There's a bunch of things where when we know we're going to be going into court for that, we have to start the process of gathering those documents very early in um, the game because it, some things have to be on file with the court under a business record affidavit for 14 days so you don't have to drag the custodian of records down to court it's just a it's a lot of preparation so those are good questions to ask your lawyer when you come in to say okay we really hope we can work this out but if we don't what is my timeline when do i need to start bringing these documents in so we can start getting everything gathered together exactly and i you know i, I know for so many people it is one of the very frustrating things about the divorce process is just what do you mean i have to go back and collect all this doc all these documents you know the other party has access to all these documents i feel like i'm doing all this work and it you know it doesn't seem like they're doing the same work and you know the point is to help your lawyers be able to put on the evidence that they need to in the hearing. Correct. And and so you'll save yourself a lot of heartache and a lot of attorney's fees if you know you can just help us help you, right? Exactly. And at our firm, for instance, we have some amazing paralegals who work hand in hand with each lawyer and they bill at a lower hourly rate than we do. And they can be a real uh, resource to our clients to help them walk through, okay, this is the website you go to, download it, even if it's on that uh, granular level. Because yeah. some people, like you mentioned before, may not be dealing with the finances as much. And so many of us have gone paperless now. You have to kind of track down different institutions to figure out how many months of documents are available online. Do I have to order them directly from the bank? Do I have to go to the, the branch itself and have them printed out? So we've, I mean, obviously what we're sharing with everybody is that there, there's a lot of work involved. Um, temporary orders are important because they set the stage, right? Um, how long does it usually take to get a hearing for temporary orders? So there's different ways that hearings can come about. If you file what we call an emergency temporary restraining order or an emergency protective order where there's been family violence, the law says for a temporary restraining order, if that's granted, the hearing must be set within 14 days because it is based on an affidavit and a sworn statement in writing filed by someone that is the only thing the judge looks at. 
in that situation so the other side doesn't have the, the, the time to be able to give their side of it. It's a due process issue is what we call it. So you know if you file a temporary restraining order, a hearing will be scheduled in 14 days. A lot of times that's extended either by agreement or if the court has other cases that take precedence, then it might be 28 days because the court can extend it an additional 14 days. If you do obtain an emergency protective order where there has been family violence, and again, it's something that's done based on an affidavit filed by the petitioning party, those have to be set within 20 days. And that's a full-blown hearing. Um, and it's a protective order is a final order as well and can last up to two years. So so we've talked about sort of the emergency orders, just but just a regular temporary order. So you filed for divorce, you tried to work things out, you're not in agreement, um, so you know you're gonna have to have a hearing. How long do we expect to get in front of the judge? It used to be within a couple of weeks when we were in person pre-pandemic. Now, a lot of courts are still doing things by Zoom, which has been really great because it's efficient, but I think there's still a backlog that we're witnessing in many different counties where it could be three weeks. Some courts, it's six weeks. Um, we've had situations where it's two months. And so those are another reason why trying to work things out is always going to be the better outcome financially for people because when you have that much time between when you file for divorce and when the court can set you for a hearing, it's this limbo period you're in. And I mean, I feel like it's an incentive for people to realize they're not going to get to just rush to the courthouse right away. But sometimes we have to wait. Sometimes, sometimes we do. Now, have you gone to mediation for temporary orders before? I have. There have been... Um, I was in, I had a case in Houston a couple of years ago where it was required prior to any temporary orders hearing for the parties to go to mediation. And it's not uncommon that we will try to have some sort of uh, initial settlement conference with the other side. Maybe everyone's on Zoom together so we can just have everyone on one screen talking about like what, what what's really at issue here like what do we need to do to move this case forward or in the more traditional mediation setting that people think of where one person's in one room or zoom room and the others in another and the mediator shuffles back and forth just to try to help them get through these you know things on the punch list of what do we need to just have the parameters going forward so we can make it through to the informa more information gathering to work on settling someone's case. Now, in uh, different counties are different, and that's I think one of the things that people need to realize is I, I don't know how many counties we have in Texas, but that's as many <laughs> two hundred and fifty four. There we go. Okay, <laughs> um, and so you have you have different processes procedures in each county, but even within each county, each court then has different procedures as well. And there is a big difference in our area here in North Texas between, say, Dallas County and how things get set in Collin County. Do you want to talk a little bit about the about the difference between the two counties? Yes. Yeah, so Collin County, for one, they have their courts are courts of general jurisdiction. There are some that specialize more in family court and hear the majority of family cases. But when we say general jurisdiction, it means that a judge may have a docket where they have everything from a civil matter between businesses to a divorce case, temporary orders, and then there might be a criminal docket. So knowing that those judges hear all different kinds of cases, that is something where 
they don't just set aside set times for people. They have they bring everyone in, everyone announces whether they have agreements prior to the hearing starting or how much time they're going to need. And Collin County as a rule just a long time ago said every temporary orders hearing is 20 minutes aside. And there are very few exceptions to that. You have to really work hard to explain to the judge why you can't put on your case in 20 minutes. Right. And then in Dallas County, we actually have judges who are family court judges. And Correct. so all they hear are family court cases, but they have associate judges. And so let's talk a little bit about what happens um, if you don't like the ruling you get in temporary orders. What's the difference between Dallas and some of our other smaller counties? That's a great point. So like I mentioned, Collin County, you have your district court judge and they hear everything. It's the same in Denton County. But in Tarrant County and Dallas County, we do have the associate judges. So they have been appointed by the district court judges as opposed to being elected to help with these cases. It's the overflow. And mainly our district court judges are hearing the final trial and certain specific issues. And it, it does help cut down the time to get into court. But as you mentioned, you have your hearing in front of an associate judge and that uh, ruling from the associate judge, the recommendation that that judge makes, while it is an order of the court, once it is rendered, it is appealable de novo to the district court judge. And de novo means that you take the ruling and you have to abide by it until you get in front of the district court judge, but the district court judge hears your hearing all over again from the start. They're not reviewing the record. They're not making a judgment on the exact evidence the other judge heard. They are hearing it fresh. So it's a second bite at the apple. But that also means it's a whole second round of lining up the witnesses and you know preparing the exhibits and, and all that work that went into the original temporary orders hearing. You get to do it over again. <laughs> you do. And there are and people always ask too about these de novo hearings. Again, the law says that it has to be set within 30 days, but it's been a long time since any of us has been able to actually have a de novo set and heard within 30 days. So what a bunch of the judges are doing now is they will give you a scheduling conference or a pretrial on the de novo hearing, but it could be months out from that first appearance before them, before you actually get to, to have your do over. And if you don't have an associate judge, if you're in one of the courts that has the court uh, general jurisdiction, what happens if you don't like the temporary orders in that court? <laughs> you don't have the same, I mean, you can ask the judge to reconsider. That's probably going to be denied. In certain instances, we have what's called mandamus relief, which is where you take it from the district court to the actual court of appeals, whether it's the Dallas Court of Appeals or the Fort Worth Court of Appeals, depending on the jurisdiction of uh, the court you were in. And a mandamus is where you make your case for how the district court judge did things so horribly that in the middle of the case, you need this upper court to intervene. So it's got to be something pretty serious for them to even take it up. Right. So it might be like a jurisdiction question, like the court didn't even have authority to hear it or mm -hmm. some other issues, but it has to be pretty extreme. Exactly. Um, so really, with even in the courts that have associate judges, you're, you're going to be living under those temporary orders for a while, at least, um, as your case kind of rocks along. And so, you know, that's why another reason why so much preparation goes into, you know, these hearings is because this is this is going to set the stage 
for really, you know, a large amount of time while your divorce is pending. It is. And I mean, we talked about the nuts and bolts of the kinds of things that the judges rule on, but it also gives you a roadmap because the judge will say, um, you know, here's what the schedule is going to be. Here's how the bills will be paid. You guys need to have everything ready for mediation in terms of exchanging uh, sworn inventories that show all of the assets and liabilities by a certain day. Then the judge is most of the time going to say you need to be in mediation within three months, six months. Oftentimes the judge will appoint a mediator to handle your case. And unless you are able to reach a settlement agreement prior to mediation, that's an order of the court requiring both parties to participate in mediation in good faith prior to ever having a final trial on the merits. I think mediation is another great topic. You're going to have to come back and we'll have we'll continue the conversation about mediation because that, that's almost a whole session in and of itself. Um, but what, in terms of, what you see with your clients do do most of them end up having to have temporary orders or you know what how does it usually go in most of the cases that you, you deal with the cases where we ultimately end up having a temporary orders hearing are usually the very high conflict ones or if there is some issue with family violence child neglect or substance abuse so those are the situations where you can do your best to try to work something out, but if the other side is just not going to move and refusing to make any agreements or even come to the table, that's usually when we need the court to intervene. But even up to that process, I mean, it's even the cases we have set for temporary orders, the closer you get to that hearing, I think the more anxiety people have, the more stress they have, and they start thinking, oh, do I really want to go to court? Do I want to do this? There's something magical even about being at the courthouse and walking through those metal detectors where you might be sitting and waiting for the judge to call your case and the lawyers will say, can we go in the other room to talk? I mean, it's, it's, it's every step of the way. There's always an opportunity to resolve things by agreement. It's just the quicker you do that, usually the less costly things are. Exactly. And I know, I, I mean, it, it is so good when both parties can participate in the decision-making process and actually make an agreement. And I, I'm with you. But I do know it's so frustrating for people to say, what do you mean we're settling? You know, why are we here at the courthouse? Um, and now we're settling after we've done all this preparation work. But it's the preparation work oftentimes that makes that settlement possible. A hundred percent. I mean, there's no... Even when you have an unsuccessful mediation, sometimes you may not have settled your case then, but I feel like you are gathering information, you're getting a sense of what the other side needs and wants. And so every single step of the way, I think it's getting you closer to a final resolution of the case. Right. It really helps flesh out the strengths and weaknesses um, for both for you know our clients as well as for the other side. Um, Okay, so of course, everything we're talking about today, if we're talking about general information, this is not legal advice. Anybody's watching, you know, if they're preparing for a temporary orders hearing, they need to make sure to consult with their lawyer because different situations are very different and will require different levels of preparation. Um, the last thing I want to touch on, uh, because this can sometimes be confusing, is in a lot of our counties, including Dallas County, anytime a divorce is filed, there's something called standing orders. 
what are standing orders and how are they different from the temporary orders? That's a great question. So a standing order, we have one in Dallas County, Collin County, Denton County, Rockwall, I believe. Tarrant County had an emergency one in the beginning of the pandemic, but now they do not have one. It is an exhibit, it's usually three or four pages long, that when a divorce is filed, the clerk automatically requires it to be attached. It is signed by every judge in that jurisdiction, and it is the do's and don'ts of how to act when this is going on. So you have everything from don't cancel someone's cell phone service or, you know, credit cards or lock them out of the house without the judge's authorization. Don't destroy property. Don't hide property. Don't divert mail. Don't change online passwords. Don't pull the kids out of school. Don't run out of state with the kids and try to relocate to another jurisdiction. All of the things that intuitively we think well, of course she wouldn't do that, but <laughs> for some reason we need them in writing. And I just, I, we tell, I think our clients, you need to read this very carefully because it says all the things you can't do, but it also specifically authorizes behavior. So it does say, it doesn't just lock down your bank accounts. It says you can use funds or incur debt for reasonable and necessary living expenses, reasonable and necessary business expenses, and then also to, uh, to pay your attorney. Right. <laughs> the specific authorizations. And of course, a lot of that is subject to interpretation. But just like a temporary order, which we said is an order of the court, the standing order is signed by the judges. And there are certain judges who, if you violate those, they will take it as seriously with potential contempt of court for violating the standing orders. And, and these can be actions that are, you know, making big purchases or paying off credit cards. A lot of people think, oh, I'm in divorce, I'm just gonna pay off my credit card. And that really, that's not authorized. You're supposed to be making minimum payments um, on, the, on the debt. So, and if you wanna do something in variation with that, you need to talk with your lawyer. Again, there may be good reasons to be doing that for business reasons or living expenses, but um, pay attention to those because I think a lot of people you know, can stumble into some activities that are not authorized and that can create problems. It can, and there are some counties too that have what we call morality clauses in the standing orders. So even though if you consider yourself separated from your spouse, maybe both of you are dating, there are uh, judges who say, you're not allowed to have someone that you're in a dating relationship with around the kids between certain hours. So you can't have the boyfriend or girlfriend sleep over when the, you've got the kids with you. And a lot of judges take that very seriously. They do. And it's never it's never a fun thing to be appearing in front of the judge when you, you have violated one of those orders. Um, and so that's something important for people to pay attention to. And it doesn't mean that you can't do big things. I mean, we have had several cases where in this market with real estate, people know they're not going to be divorced in time to really take advantage of it. So they do want to agree to, for instance, sell the house or to make a certain purchase. And my rule of thumb is always that we can get an agreement on pretty much anything. Usually the judge will approve it. It just involves having to say, if I'm going to make a major purchase or acquire some sort of major debt, liability, anything like that, you just want to make sure both sides know about it and they've signed off on it so that 
you're not the one getting called out for having done something without the other person's okay. It's definitely not okay to say, well, I knew she would have agreed with this or he would have agreed with it and to go with forward. And then, then you've created a big mess. So, you have. You have. <laughs> again, I think, you know, um, clarifying expectations, having written agreements um, can really help move the case along. They can. This has been really fun. Thanks for sitting down and uh, talking with me about temporary orders, why they're so important and what people need to pay attention to. That was lovely. Thank you for having me. To learn more about Lindsay Barbie and her practice and Hargrave Family Law, uh, check out our website. We'll include a link below. And if you found this uh, helpful, we hope you'll subscribe so you can stay uh, tuned in for more, uh, more episodes. Thank you.